0: This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, Rudder sits down with Dr. Jerry Hendricks, who previously served as Senior Fellow and Director of the Defense Program at the Center for New American Security. They discuss the current state of America's naval supremacy in the Indo-Pacific, in contrast to the mounting challenges posed by Communist China. Dr. Jerry Hendricks, welcome to the show it's
1: great to be here roger and and thank you for having me on again i always enjoy these conversations
0: well uh you are a pleasure to have on the show a real expert in, in national security defense strategy and particularly the u.s navy uh naval strategy we'll talk about all that today uh, you come to us after years of service as a strategist for the cno secretary of the navy of uh, defense for policy that office of net assessment which of course has been critical over the decades as being the the think tank of sorts where uh, winning strategies for the U.S. military uh, emanated from. Uh, Jerry, one of the things I want to start with today is the recent release of the China Military Power Report. This is the annual report, the Pentagon produces talking about what China is up to militarily. Quick note about that for viewers and listeners. This is a sort of report that up until President Trump was elected, the administration never really wanted to give Congress. Uh, it's a riff on what Congress required um, of the administration during the Cold War when Congress wanted to get a better handle of the Soviet military buildup. Now. With President Trump and the focus since on China. Now we're getting some really good media information out of this report. Jerry, have you had a chance to look at the report, what stands out to you? Uh, And we'll jump into some of the Navy numbers that were were in the report.
1: Well, you know, the the entire report demonstrates that China is making significant investments in their uh, defense industrial base, as well as their overall defense structure. What we can kind of figure out is the difference between what they're publicly reporting so far as how much they're spending on defense and what's actually being uh, made manifest in their force are two different numbers. So you know, clearly, obviously, a, a centrally controlled economy, uh, they can hide a lot of numbers and the way that they they do things. But right now, we're seeing the construction of a new uh, combatant for the Chinese Navy, Navy every five weeks. Uh, that's essentially you know over twenty ships. Uh, you know that we're seeing projected across a year. You know we're lucky to get eight to ten ships out a year. So they're they're vastly outbuilding us right now, and they're able to do that because they got a larger industrial base. but but beyond that, you know we're looking at their rocket force, uh, and so we're seeing a modernization of their rocket force. Uh, we're seeing indications of significant improvements in uh, their nuclear uh, force, which is concerning. Uh, because we really are coming into this you know sort of trilateral nuclear arrangement which we have no experience with. Virtually all of our strategies and all of our treaties are set up really uh, on a bilateral basis between us and the former Soviet Union. So the idea that we're going to be balancing between three legs and also a significant modernization of the Chinese air Force. Uh, so they're seeing you know investments in stealth both in smaller fighters, but also moving towards larger bombers, Those are concerning to us uh, because we're making these investments right now in B-21. And if China is able to engage their industrial base as well as uh, for aircraft, as well as they've done for uh, ships, uh, they can outbuild us there. So it, it's it's a really troubling report.
0: Yeah, a uh, lot there to discuss. So I'm going to pull on a couple of threads there. First is their defense budget. And generally, we think of it as, well, maybe a third of, of the U.S. defense budget is a question of uh, whether or not they include the personnel costs there. Of course, the United States does. But what I hear you saying, Jerry, is that the way to measure it perhaps is not um, what you know, the normal metrics in terms of what the government says and uh, the size of, let's say, their defense concerns, but actually look at what they're producing. <laughs> and then and then from that, you see that this is uh, a buildup on a scale that is probably on par with what the United States spends. Now, there's certain things that we spend on, including our budget, that may not be apples to apples with, with, with the Chinese. I mentioned some of those personnel costs, but is that where you're going in your mind? Do you think it's almost a one-to-one?
1: Yeah, uh, I, I think that, quite frankly, I think they're probably spending less than us, but being more effective with it because they have a younger industrial base uh, and and um, and let's just say essentially controlled ability to produce. Uh, but that being said, they are vastly outbuilding us. And and you know, going back to you mentioned my my work in in Mr. Marshall's office, the Office of Net Assessment. I can remember having a conversation with him one time uh, about the fact that if you show me what they're building, I'll tell you what their strategy is. So as we look at the types of ships and aircraft that they're building, they're moving really uh, significantly from a coastal defense force to a power projection. So let's
0: talk, I throw some numbers at you just for for context, for uh, listeners and viewers, the United States battle force today stands at uh, roughly 290 ships, the PLA Navy has 370 ship fleet uh, expected to go to 395 by 2025 and 435 by 2030. Those are the numbers in the aforementioned military power report that the Pentagon put out China, Chinese military power report. All right. So Marshall, Andy Marshall comes to you, shows you these numbers, and then he says, "Okay, what are they? What are they seeking to do? What's the answer?"
1: Again, and so we're looking at power projection because if you look at what they're building, uh, they're looking at guided missile cruisers, they're looking at uh, guided missile destroyers, they're looking at large amphibious assault ships, they're looking at aircraft carriers, we're huge investments right now in their nuclear attack submarine force, as well as a modernization of their ballistic missile submarines. This is this is definitely moving from again coastal defense to power projection. Now, what was interesting, uh, because I monitor this really close, is that 370 ship number that we're looking at right now uh, does not include approximately 85 ships, which are small surface combatants, which really can only operate inside the first island chain. And we made the decision to not count those towards Air Force when the Chinese very much count those towards Air Force. So the Chinese are actually coming to play right now with around 455 ships, Uh, to be able to operate inside that first island chain with 370 ships being able to go on the road, project power beyond the second island chain, that should be concerning to any geostrategist today. Super
0: interesting. So 370 that can go beyond the island chain, we keep on referencing. And this, you know, for for way to think of it generally is that first island chain is kind of where Taiwan sits and then beyond Taiwan, if you go... Japan, the east, Philippines, east of Taiwan, Japan, Philippines, then you get the second island chain, and and the the sorts of ships that we're not counting in this report, you know, the one that gets from three seventy to four fifty five, uh, Jerry, you're saying those are kind of more littoral sort of ships, maybe akin to our littoral combat ships, or, uh, but 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 they're PLA, these are navy ships, these aren't some sort of uh, coast guard uh, ships, these are these are part of, uh, you know, what what the but the PLA navy would say they're surface combatants.
1: Uh, That's correct. And so if we really think that the primary area that we're concerned about is the Taiwan campaign and the Taiwan threat operating inside that first island chain, those ships will very certainly play within that. But if we come to play and we have to project power across the vast Pacific into the Indian Ocean, the Pacific Ocean, let's say that we want to impose an economic blockade. So I want to cut off or interdict their supplies from Africa and Australia and South America. So they'll have a sufficient number of ships to stay home and play inside that first island chain, and they'll have a large number of ships that they can project outward to defend their shipping fleet and interdict our Navy if we try to move against it. So they have a very balanced uh, inside game, outside game right now, and I don't think that we really have gained a significant strategic appreciation of what they're able to do with the fleet they have
0: well i want to get to the inside game in a second and that's uh, the euphemism for taiwan uh but before we get there there got to be some challenges for the Chinese. And so the one piece of it is shipbuilding, but we've been projecting power globally as a country. Um, I mean, you can argue before the Second World War, but since certainly after the Second World War, that became a core mission uh, of the U.S. Navy. Uh, we're smaller than we've ever been, uh, but this is what we do with our carrier and our carrier battle groups. We'll get this a little bit later, but, you know, we, we have the... Uh, war in Gaza uh, following Hamas's uh, vicious attacks on Israel on October 7th, the response, not just one, but two carrier groups have gone out to the Med, right, to the Mediterranean. So we've we've done this for a long time. Um, we can talk about whether or not we have sufficient force, sufficient um, uh, ships to actually sustain the type of, of, of engagement we've done to project power globally. But for now, just comment on the challenges that PLA will face to actually operate globally beyond just having the, 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 the ships.
1: Well, one of the things that uh, I look at, you know, that that old uh, joke, you know, George Marshall talked about logistics wins wars, you know, uh, you know, tactics and strategy win battles, but logistics wins wars. Well, what is the logistics train that the Chinese have established? They have made significant investments in a number of port facilities around the world. And they will say that, hey, those are commercial port facilities. They don't have military intent, uh, and, and you know, so on and et cetera. The fact is, is you know, that that's a snap of a finger turn of policy that those commercial port facilities being run and managed by Chinese companies and Chinese entities would be able to turn to support their force should they choose to go overseas. The other thing I've been looking at, which is a really crucial widget in naval operations is their ability to do underway replenishment, unreps, as we like to say within the fleet. And when they first started out doing this in about 2010, when they joined Task Force 155, which was the counter piracy task force in the Gulf of Aden, you know, the Chinese would come over and they would have to trail a hose out behind their oiler uh, and then pick that hose up and then, you know, plug it in, you know, because that was the easiest way to do underway replenishment at sea. Now they are doing it like the mature professionals do. They are coming alongside with their oilers. They're tossing lines over, they're rigging cables, they're able to move large amounts of fuel simultaneously, you know, on port and starboard of their oilers. So the Chinese have really matured a lot over the last 13, 14 years on their ability to operate and sustain their operations at sea. So they build a huge port, um, you know, infrastructure and constellation. And they have the ability to, to refuel undersea. They're they're getting ready uh, to kind of play in the big game at this point to be a blue water navy.
0: All right. So the, 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 you you seem pretty convinced that the blue water navy is something that is is not a reach but but a, a reality. Uh, if it's not here now, it's it's coming here soon. Um, one one piece that our navy relies upon and it seems to be a, a key uh, comparative advantage for us is allies. Uh, we think of allies in a very uh, kind of you know, conceptual way, it's good to have friends. But when it comes to the U.S. Navy, it, it really it impacts the logistics points you're making. I mean, we, could, we can stop, we have experience, you know, in ports around the world, and we have experience um, um, in all sorts of different places in a fashion that, you know, the Chinese, my senses don't, don't really have. Even with the commercial ports that they're investing in, it's, it's not uh, the well-oiled machine that the U.S. Navy has as it goes around the world. Comment on the Allies piece and its relevance here.
1: Well, it's interesting you say that because when I when I was doing, I just uh, uh, issued a report through the Sagamore Institute uh, on uh, measuring the value of naval presence. One of the crucial components um, in sort of the uh, ephemeral aspect of naval presence is the, the alliance structure. You know, the United States has 50 treaty allies, uh, 49 of which are overseas across the oceans, the Atlantic and Pacific. So we have a very strong, robust constellation of allies. The real question then though becomes is how often have you exercised the alliance? Mm. So it's one thing to have an ally, but <clears throat> do you have a relationship to do refueling in their ports? Are there standby supplies of ordnance in their ports that let's say that we suddenly get into it right now with yeah. Hezbollah.
0: Prepositioned stocks and the like that you can put on board.
1: Yeah, where, where could we pull the Ford and the Eisenhower back in to kind of resupply, or for that matter, their ammo supply ships? I don't think that we flexed that portion of the alliance in quite a while, uh, let's say since the end of the Cold War. And that's something I think we need to get significantly back into. And I would say that in Europe, as well as with the Philippines and with uh, Japan, I know we've got ordnance supplies in Japan right. and in South Korea because those are hot zones. But right now, my main concern is the Mediterranean and Europe because we haven't really flexed our naval logistical support system in the MED in a long time.
0: You know, some people try to distinguish uh, um, or, and make wanna, want us to prioritize regions in our strategy, uh, focus on the Indo-Pacific exclusion of the Middle East, focus on the Indo-Pacific exclusion uh, of Europe. You have that a lot in the discussion of, of Ukraine. Uh, as you think about China projecting power and using its Navy as a vehicle to project power, um, you know, energy, energy resources seem to be critical. So you get uh, areas in West Africa, for example, um, also the Middle East. Uh, based on your analysis and, and, and reading of, of their strategy, uh, where do they wanna project power first? Where does that, that, that you know, Lucy Navy, where, where does it wanna be uh, beyond, of course, outside the second island chain?
1: Well, it, it's interesting because I think five years ago, I would have really focused on Africa um with with a move down towards australia and then over to south america uh essentially the the western side of south america because that was where they were getting a lot of their their ordinance or uh, not ordinance their ores and raw materials were coming out of those areas the energy was coming out of africa and the middle east and and they had a huge focus on the indian ocean trying to maintain that sea line of communication then five years on China is really revealing itself to made huge investments in South uh, and Central America. They seem to be making inroads increasingly into our own back road, our backyard. And so in many ways, China is now a a global uh, power. Um, in in much the same sense that we are. They have global interest everywhere and on virtually every continent. China's even expressing interest in the economic development of Antarctica, which we sort of cocooned off uh, decades ago and said that was only going to be like the land of scientists. But China's like, hey, don't speak too soon because resources are scarce here on the planet and we need to find them whether it's antarctica or quite frankly the moon uh because the chinese have recently updated their space strategy and they're they're in, in a resource hunt for raw materials
0: all right so it, it, it's truly global in nature Let, let's shift to the u.s side of the equation so you've done a nice job uh, again we're with dr jerry hendricks uh navy expert uh retired navy captain uh great friend of the the reagan institute what does the U.S. need to do to respond, Jerry? So it's it's we've talked about the shipbuilding and the investments on the Chinese side, how it's outpacing us in terms of production, uh, whether or not you want to say they're spending the same or less in terms of dollars. Um, you know what we want as a country, I would think, is is a maritime maritime margin of safety is what Reagan would have called it. You know we want to have uh, naval superiority. Um, Congress has mandated 355 ship force uh, that was in a defense bill of 2018 or so um you now we're, we're clearly not there what what is required for us to sustain if you believe we have it or realize if you believe we don't kind of superiority uh, uh naval superiority
1: well you know first of all I, I think in and I, I I touched on this earlier this year in an essay in the Atlantic I talked about the fact that you know, with $33 trillion in debt, you know, uh, now is a time of choosing, to use uh, one of Reagan's great phrases, uh, where we're going to have to make some hard decision about what we do priority. And by the way, that's not about prioritizing China over Europe. I, I think we do have to demonstrate um, that, that we can be a global uh, superpower on a global scale, because uh, we have interests on a global scale, and we're being challenged on a global scale. But we do have to make sort of a decision whether we want to take a continentalist approach where we really emphasize boots on the ground and direct American involvement essentially everywhere, or whether we would step back and take a maritime approach, which really is is to say maritime, air, space, and cyber, because I think it's going to be in the great commons. Uh, the, the oceans, uh, in the air, in space, and cyberspace, where this competition is going to be play out. China does not want to get into a direct land-to-land component uh, competition with us. Um, they kind of have some freak-out about that because if that happens, they've got a giant people factory just to their south that's kind of been eager to get their licks in for a while, and, and China's a little concerned about what would happen in India uh, if we had some sort of emotion where we went toe-to-toe. So they wanna compete in the commons as well. So I think you have to emphasize uh, shipbuilding, aircraft building, and also ship maintenance and aviation maintenance to be able to meet this challenge. We need to be able to expand our ability to produce n- more platforms, but we also need to do a better job of maintaining the platforms that we have now. And we're sort of failing on both of those. We're failing in that because we have failed to uh, manage the defense industrial base across this span of the post-Cold War era. You know, uh, Bill Perry and Les Aspen came in. They had the Last Supper. Uh, They took the defense industrial base from 105 companies down to five companies in less than a decade. We're going to need to find a way of turning back up the heat on industrial base expansion and production to be able to begin building our ships and, and our aircraft and, quite frankly, our rockets as well. I think Elon Musk has given us a strong indication of the way that we can go with space. Um and and I think we're already making significant so, investments yeah. in uh, in China. Or, I'm sorry, in cyberspace.
0: Yeah, so so big focus on industrial base investment, of course you're referencing uh with with Bill Perry and Les Aspin, former secretaries of defense during the Carter administration, uh, where they sought out the peace dividend and in the Last Supper, they said, "Well, one way we could spend less in defense is have people, less companies, fewer companies, uh, building defense products." And 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 it had its effect. Uh, and, and for for the for that episode and for other reasons, in many respects, the U.S. military today still is the military that that Reagan built and the, the Navy that John Lehman built for Reagan, the 600 ship Navy. Um, The industrial base, do you see any sign, Jerry, that our elected leadership, be it the President of the United States, the Secretary of Defense, uh, Congress, the appropriators, the authorizers, are getting focused and serious about the sort of industrial base investments that you describe? And I'll make one point and let you, you respond. There has been a lot of attention and focus on certain slices of the industrial base, munitions, for example, in light of... What we're seeing in Ukraine. But you're talking about something entirely different. Big items that, you know, platforms that, you know, need significant capital to produce at scale. Ships, you know, aircraft. Uh, And in some ways, people might frown at that because it doesn't sound like the high-tech AI-infused software that there's legitimately a place for in 21st century warfare. Uh, but some people think we ought to give up today's conventional force in favor of that. So take us through your thinking both in terms of uh, whether we have a serious approach to building the industrial base of the kind to produce things you're talking about, and two, where does the kind of 21st century uh, software-driven technology have a play in, in, in your outlook?
1: So, uh, it, first of all, there, there are some voices who are paying a lot of attention to the industrial base, uh, who, who want to put more than just words on paper. Uh, you know, Ken Calvert, I think, of California, who is the chair of the, the House Appropriations Defense Subcommittee, is, is looking for solid recommendations. Uh, you're seeing authorizers who are interested in the House leadership. I think there's some concern uh, amongst the Democrats' side, both in the Senate, and the, as to what else will we pay for, because they've had that one-for-one one deal, or even a two-for-one deal, that any additional dollar in defense spending would be met with domestic spending. And, and quite frankly, I just don't think that there's room, given the debt and the deficit, for that to continue. And yet, we need to start moving back towards 4 percent of our gross domestic product and defense spending in order to meet this new Cold War threat.
0: Let me interrupt you right there, Jerry, because you you can have people looking for ideas and you mentioned Ken Calvert, who's fantastic. We've had him on the show. He definitely wants to do more for defense, but congress has adopted a sequester a sequester mechanism i mean if we stay in a continuing resolution until april of 2024 not only will we maintain the budget from the previous fiscal year that is to say no growth it goes down by one percent uh I, you know so we're, the big idea factory can't get around the reality that you need more dollars to do this sort of thing you, you view it differently
1: Uh, No, I don't. And I was just about to turn to this, because for every Ken Calvert right now in in the House, there seems to be at least eight uh, people who want to view uh, their fiscal hawks, who view that attacking the debt and the deficit is the number one national security priority of the country. And I don't want to diminish the fact that $33 trillion, which is generating some 690 billion in interest payments a year, isn't a problem um i think it is a problem but the fact is is uh you know if if we solve our debt but we lose the world um to the chinese and the yuan becomes the fiat currency of the world you know we're still going to be in uh in the backyard for the next 200 years trying to recover our position in the world so again it's not just balancing between asia and europe it's actually balancing between asia europe and the united states being able to do all the things that are required, that means we're gonna to have to make some hard uh, uh, decisions about where we spend and what we spend on in order to maintain our current global position and recognize the strength and inherent advantages that come to us from being a global leader and make the right investments. So I, I think that we do need to expand the industrial base and the repair base, and to come to your point about technology, because I think it's an important one. Um, you know. If we have a 600-ship Navy—and I, I noted that you know, Governor DeSantis, in his recent foreign policy speech, said he wants to get to 355 by the end of his first term, and then he would get to 385 by the end of his second term. And I, I did the back-of-the-envelope math, and I found out DeSantis wants to essentially duplicate the expansion that Reagan did, 85-ship-plus-up uh, over the time of, of, his, of his entire administration, and then get to 620 years. Well, if you're going to do that, um, then the fleet of that future should not look like the fleet of today, meaning it should not duplicate, you know, 11 carrier strike groups, two cruisers, four destroyers, et cetera. That 600 ship Navy of the future ought to be including new capabilities like large and medium unmanned surface and subsurface. And certainly the carrier air wing should be integrating long range penetrating unmanned combat aerial vehicles. So we ought to be taking advantage of the new capabilities to give us a leap ahead, technical and tactical advantage in the future. Um, And right now, there are some voices doing that, uh, but I haven't seen near enough work.
0: Do you see anybody in the Navy? Actually, just your last point about technology, right? So, you know, Jerry Hendricks wants to stick with a carrier, but wants to place platforms in a carrier that are unmanned and that have the range uh, to be relevant. Um, a, 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 any voices in the U.S. Navy inside the Pentagon right now that seem to be advancing that? You hear the Air Force talk a lot about what they're doing with unmanned. You have uh, the Deputy Secretary of Defense has a has a program she's emphasizing in Replicator. Uh, what can you say for your service, Jerry?
1: Well, uh, I'm I'm a little concerned. I mean, I I think we're going to know CNO as soon as she can get confirmed by the Senate. And uh, Lisa Franketti has been a a innovative thinker in the past. Uh, I knew her both as a captain and I watched her service when she commanded Sixth Fleet in Europe and she seemed to lean in on on high-tech abilities there. Uh, So I'm gonna watch that very closely. I think our strongest uh, voice, quite frankly, on unmanned is right now sitting in Bahrain. So
0: Yeah, this is Task Force 59 here. Tell us about that.
1: Uh, So Task Force 59 was established. It was headed up by uh, a Navy captain who looked at working with the other countries in the region to develop and do advanced research development and, and prototyping there in the Arabian Gulf. The reason why Task Force 59 came into being was because of the work of Vice Admiral Brad Cooper. Who was then the commander of the US Fifth Fleet? Brad has now been elevated. He's one of the deputy CENTCOM commanders. Now he's no longer at Fifth Fleet. But that right there, that guy, has been one of the brightest, most innovative thinkers in the US Navy. He's currently still in the Middle East. I'd like to get him back here to DC and inside the Pentagon quickly um, so that he can kind of help shepherd this going forward. Uh, I've talked with Brad. Uh, I, I, I loved all of his ideas. I was just a bit disturbed. That he wanted to do all the research, development, and prototyping in front of the Iranians. Uh, I would. I've advocated for for setting up actually a test range.
0: Yeah, you want to go to Michigan uh, because we 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 show too much to our adversaries. Um, tell us about your 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 concept of what you want to do in Michigan. That was fascinating. And as you do that, Jerry, uh, just uh, give a little bit more information about what. Uh, Task Force Fifty Nine is doing in terms of the the concept development and platforms. You know they are these unmanned kind of uh, boats that are that are, are countering some of the uh, you know malicious activities by the Iranians. So, so talk about what they're doing and what you would do in Michigan.
1: So, there. Is, so, I'm gonna I'm gonna step through three things. One, uh, our, the first series of tests that we were doing with unmanned actually took off uh, took place off the west coast of the United States, out in our Southern California operations range. Um, and uh, and what we noted there was we had these large platforms that we've been developing for a few years that are sort of semi-manned and unmanned, uh, but what we saw was uh, that the Chinese began to show up and the Russians began to show up and watch this. And then Brad was over in Fifth Fleet and he wanted to really make a significant investment in Unmanned. So a lot of the platforms there were sort of very small platforms. We're talking about things that were maybe 15 feet, maybe 30 feet long, um, not, not very large, uh, small company prototypes that he brought in was able to support. He had a great team that he built up there. And we did a lot of innovation about how they would work together, how long they could stay at sea, how we would do logistics, how we would communicate with them. And we began to develop concepts of operations. But again, the Iranians would come and sort of pour up their lawn chairs like we were all at a little kid's soccer game on the weekend (laughs) to watch us do everything. And that was disturbing. Now, recently the Navy talked about that it wanted to move and consolidate all of its unmanned testing into the Caribbean, into the U.S. Southern Command or 4th Fleet uh, area of responsibility. But they made that announcement, and then two days later, or two weeks later, I should say, it was revealed that China had just made a billion-dollar investment in creating an intelligence gathering center in Cuba. And we know that the Venezuelans have actually been looking north into the Caribbean on everything that we're doing there. So that may not be the right place to do. So I sort of created this idea of utilizing Lake Michigan, which is a large inland sea. It's entirely enclosed U.S. waters, surrounded by four U.S. states. We don't border with Canada even. Um, it's uh, 320 miles uh, north to south. Uh, it's 120 miles uh, east to west. It's 900 feet deep in the in the middle of the Chippewa Basin. So we would actually have the space to do unmanned air surface and subsurface testing if we went to Lake Michigan. And by the way, we have a very large Navy base on Lake Michigan uh, at Great Lakes Naval Training Station north of Chicago, which has pier facilities and warehousing and an uh, internal water bay that we built up during World War II.
0: Uh, insight insight you could expect from a, a Midwesterner like yourself there, Jerry. Uh, <laughs> go ahead.
1: <laughs> no, no, I, I think the key thing there though is is the tech base there? And that's what I've spent a lot of the last six to nine months looking at, is the tech base there, the tech cluster in unmanned and AI, would it be willing to kind of move to the Midwest? Cause that's really where we need to incentivize. But I would tell you that there's been some great states uh, like Indiana uh, that have the right sort of tax structure to incentivize small company startups and large companies moving. So, you know, I'd love to see that take off.
0: What's been the reception to date? Um, you know, with your Navy's Area 52 sort of thing. Uh, well, it's. So I've had some very positive feedback from some former uh,
1: senior governor officials. I've had a chance to brief the Secretary of the Navy and the and the former Chief of Naval Operations, and everyone sort of comes to me and says, "Well, why aren't we doing this already?" <laughs> um, and the key thing is that though everyone asks, so I had a chance to brief some senior staffers in the Pentagon. That's like. Well, how are you gonna pay for it? I said, well, you're already spending millions of dollars developing unmanned. How about we consolidate all those billets and all that money in this location? And then we sort of make that investment and then we can grow for there. But Roger, and this is the, the key and crucial point, is that right now, unmanned platforms within the Navy are largely controlled by the manned communities. And it's not in the interest of the manned communities to see unmanned either grow in its budget or in its missions. We need to create a place for an unmanned community to uh, put down roots, grow, and and as I like to say, we need to create the field where we can let the horses run free and just see what they can do.
0: Uh, I, what you're describing, the Navy, we've seen with the Air Force too, we're seeing with the Army as well. It's 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 just what you'd expect in a in a big old bureaucracy. People not wanting to let go. Um, we haven't talked about much. You reference it in terms of maintenance and what the PLA is doing, but submarines. Um, and let's just take a minute or two to talk about the state of our submarine force and then we'll want to hit on gaza and then wrap up this conversation but we have an expectation the congress had an expectation that we'll be doing three a year of our fast boats i'm not talking about the boomers the nuclear um you know part of our triad submarines these are the ones that by everyone's account seems to be our competitive advantage vis-a-vis the chinese And now we are basically at 1.2 a year. And if you take the, that production against the number that are out for maintenance or retiring, it's, uh, we're losing fast subs year over year, the SSNs. What the heck do we do about this, Jerry? Well, it's, it's a, it's a tough,
1: it's a very tough issue uh, because we ramped up, we put the the pedal down. We plan to put the pedal down and accelerate uh, submarine production for the Fast Attack Virginia class boats um, in 2019, and then boom, 2020, COVID hits. Okay, so huge impact not only on in stride production, but also recruitment uh, opportunities. The idea that we were gonna we were gonna add 10,000 workers across the submarine industrial base, and quite frankly, all those workers stayed home and they they took their their checks from the government. And we weren't able to kind of do that and right now what we saw was we were going from two a year and we went down to this 1.4 to 1.2 a year and then we cut in columbia class which is the new ballistic missile submarine to replace the ohios and so now we have all of these things cluging together then we added on top of that the biden administration's decision to pursue the AUKUS deal which means that the u.s is on the hook to create three fast attack submarines for the australians over the next 10 to 15 years, those submarines are not going to just come out of thin air. That means actually three submarines that will come out of our production schedule in order to help our alliance, our ally and build that alliance structure. So then-, the, then Yeah, go ahead, add that, to Roger. the problem. <laughs> yeah, then onto that, Roger, is the industrial base for repairing and maintaining our submarines fell far, far behind. So we have some 40% of the fast attack submarine force right now cannot get underway. It's not certified to dive because we're over two years behind on submarine repairs in the United States. It's it's very clear that when we bracked our Navy yards back in the 90s, we probably shut down one to too many many yards. We need to have that capacity back. So not only can't we can't build, we can't maintain what we have.
0: So the 40% of the fleet is behind. You can't, you can't deploy it. And that's tied to BRAC, which of course is the base realignment and closure of the 1990s, uh, and so now we're looking at the industrial base both to build ships and also to sustain ships, right? Two different kinds of, of yards, each really uh hurting at this moment. You mentioned AUKUS, we'll go there and then then we'll briefly hit on on your thoughts on, on the Navy's role uh in the, the carrier strike groups in in the in the med. Um but AUKUS seems to me as an opportunity for the industrial base to say, you know what, there's enough kind of capital coming in. There's enough business that let us as a business invest. If you look at any other company, Fortune 500 company, if there's a market for something, you know, gives confidence to the senior leadership and the investors to, uh, you know, make a CapEx investment, obviously more complicated in the world of, of, of submarines, but where is the industrial base and like, hey there's a great demand for this let's invest in what we're going to build up capacity so it, it,
1: it first of all you, you've teed that up superbly because there is a huge conversation going on like do we need a third submarine construction yard in the united states well here's the one thing to build a nuclear powered submarine you need to be certified to work on nuclear reactors which means you have to create a yard that has all those certifications and you need a workforce that's certified, like nuclear welders are different than regular welders. So where are those nuclear welders for the new yard gonna go? I mean, I'm all in favor of industrial expansion. Obviously I've been talking about that with you for the past 45 minutes. But the point here is if we try to press for a third yard quickly, we're going to have to take trained skilled labor from the other two yards to be able to fall in on that to begin building the workforce, because you know how it goes. You're going to go with a tendered apprentice who's going to become a journeyman who's going to become a master. He has to be trained by somebody that somebody's got to come from someplace. So we may, in the short term, end up making our production more inefficient as we try to get into increased
0: capacity. Yeah, well, that's great. With more to talk about, perhaps another time. I, I believe we're still uh, building these submarines in the most inefficient way, carrying them up the coast between Virginia and and Maine or wherever. And it's it's it seems to me we could do better and, and get more output if we revisited that as well. Um, last item, and then we'll go to our lightning round. We're with Dr. Jerry Hendricks, retired Navy Captain, naval expert. Um, I look at the Biden response to Gaza as it relates to the military deployment of aircraft carriers. I'm surprised they sent a, they sent a second carrier strike group. But to me, it seems a the right use of military power to, demonst- to deter, in this case, deterring Hezbollah, more broadly, Iran not allowing or, or making clear that the U.S. wouldn't tolerate a second front. Some people out there see this and you know they roll their eyes and they say, once again, we're prioritizing our force uh, in the wrong area. This is not the right way, not the right use of of, of naval power. Give me your take uh, on on this latest uh, deployment of of two carrier strike groups into the Med uh, as a result of the war in Gaza.
1: Well, the Gerald R. Ford was already there. Uh, so she had been operating in the Med. Uh, so we essentially moved her to the East Med. And and, and it was really impressive, actually, because she took her Ticonderoga-class cruiser. Uh, she took four of her Arleigh Burke-class destroyers, uh, which means that, you know, you're looking at well over 200 Tomahawk missiles right there, and then the Ford's air wing. So that, that's an impressive deterrent force that's showing up very quickly. And then they made the decision to deploy the Eisenhower- Uh, just a bit early, uh, because Ike was coming up in rotation she was going to do to relieve Ford. So Ike's going to fall in on the Mediterranean fleet with her escorts. Um, And actually, I've begun, I think I saw a story last week that they're talking about swinging Eisenhower around into the Red Sea and perhaps even uh, into the Arabian Gulf. That would put Eisenhower in position that if uh, Hezbollah goes against Israel from the north— Eisenhower would be in a position then to be able to strike uh, perhaps Iranian targets, the state sponsor of terrorism in the region. I think that that's a strong deterrent uh, signal to send. And Ford's been extended on deployment. And boy, I've been there a couple of times where, you know, you, you got a nice six-month deployment and suddenly you got a nine-month deployment. Mm. Uh, you know, that that night when they serve lobster and steak on board the carrier, you know, it's bad. You
0: know, something, something's you know. wrong. <laughs>
1: yeah. So so I think it was a strong deterrent. But here's the problem. So this is the big question. Does the Biden administration have a sufficient reputation for combat credibility and will? Um, and right now, because of the way that he pil- pulled out of Afghanistan and also the way they handled the early, early days of Ukraine, there is a, a strong question, even with the two carriers, of whether that presence will be sufficient given the lack of. Well, the
0: we'll see that because Hezbollah is certainly considering. Uh, whether they're going to open up the second front in earnest, is, it's actually started already, but it's it seems to be each side is testing the other, and it, it, but it could escalate quickly. And there's been chatter out of the Biden administration that if uh, Hezbollah were to employ its substantial inventory of rockets and missiles against Israel, uh, then the President of the United States would employ our carrier to counter it. So w- we will see whether the carrier on its own is a deterrent or whether it will require uh, President Biden to authorize use of force. Jerry, let's go to our lightning round. This is where I ask all our guests to share with us their favorite book on President Reagan, their favorite speech by President Reagan, their favorite Reagan quote. What do you got?
1: Uh, Craig Shirley's Rendezvous with Destiny. I uh, think he's a really good writer. Um, the one thing I would tell you, I've read a lot of books about Reagan. Um, and the fact, as a person who observed Ronald Reagan in person uh, in numerous occasions on, on speeches, uh, almost no book actually matches Reagan in his personal persona and and, and eloquence. Uh, but I, I like Shirley's book, and, and there's more of the rhythm and the poetry of Reagan within that book. Um, my favorite speech, uh, bar none, of, of Boys of Pointe du yep. uh, just that speech will make me cry virtually every time that I listen to it and I watch the YouTube video and just listen to those dramatic pauses where Reagan evokes the memory of these boys, these old men, but who had been boys uh, who helped to save the world. And then, of course, you know, my favorite quote is, you know, uh, we win, you lose. Uh, Such a stark black and white strategic statement, that conversation that he had with Richard Allen in the late 1970s, where Reagan just laid it on the line. This is how I see the world. Don't you see it the same way? And the
0: American people said, yes. And, And then we went and did it. And then he, and then he did it. Uh, we won, and in, in no small part uh, due to Reagan's leadership and his presidency in those years uh, prior to the fall of the Soviet Union. Dr. Jerry Hendricks, thanks so much for being on the show. It's been a pleasure. Thanks again. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Reaganism. New episodes premiere weekly every Monday on YouTube and all podcast streaming platforms. If you like this episode, be sure to let us know and share with a friend.